0: Amen. Wow, that's a great song. <laughs> what a great song to, to lead us to the throne and to lead us to God's Word. This is uh, going to be part one of a two-part series. You know, I was working this week on Hebrews chapter 10, and I, I really thought I could get the first 25 verses into one message. But I just, in the end, unless you wanted to stay till like 2 o'clock... I decided well I better split it into two so we're gonna look at the first ten verses today on boldness and then we'll come back uh, next week and we'll look at boldness uh, part two but to introduce this uh, topic I wanted to tell a story that some of you may have heard you may be familiar you may be familiar with uh, the story about Ed and Joe who went to visit the circus And uh, they were really enjoying themselves, Uh, and then Ed and Joe came to this cage with this ferocious-looking lion in it. And these two guys, they they stared at this beast as it growled and bared its teeth, and after a few moments, a, a beautiful young lady approached the cage, dressed in a sparkling sequined dress and a long, flowing cape, and to Ed and Joe's shock, the woman opened the door of the cage and stepped inside. She was the lion tamer. Well, Ed and Joe looked at one another. They just couldn't believe it. They watched as the lion stared at the young lady and prepared to pounce. But then suddenly, the young lady pointed her finger at the lion and said, Sit. And the lion meekly sat. And then she commanded, Crawl. And the lion slowly crawled toward her. Ed and Joe continued to watch in utter amazement, scarcely believing what they were seeing. The young lady extended her arm toward the lion, and the lion licked her hand like a kitten. And then she bent down, and the lion appeared to kiss her on the cheek. Ed turned to Joe and exclaimed, Wow, what courage, what boldness. I I wouldn't do that for anything in the world. And Joe responded, Well, I would. And Ed said, no way, you're crazy, you would never do that, and Joe replied, of course I would. You get that lion out of there, and I'll show you right now. <laughs> <laughs> you know, as I think about what we're going through in our world today, there was a time, it seems to me, when boldness was one of those all-American qualities. Our, our, our heroes were like Patrick Henry and Davy Crockett. They inspired us. We looked up to to people like you know Rosa Parks or John Wayne or even Amelia Earhart but I just don't see much of that anymore it seems like these days Americans in general and Christians in particular are more like Jonathan Swift's Gulliver remember that story Gulliver's Travels tied down and paralyzed by tiny threads of fear we've lost our courage You know, people stand by and watch a fellow citizen being mugged and do nothing. They're afraid. Christians stand by and watch atheistic communism envelop our nation and do nothing. We're afraid. People grumble in private about the state of affairs, but they're just too afraid to speak out publicly. Seems like most Christians tend to emulate Elijah when he fled from wicked Queen Jezebel and found himself quivering fearfully in a cave, instead of emulating the prophet Daniel who we're studying in our Bible study hour who stood up publicly to evil King Nebuchadnezzar. As we continue this journey through Hebrews, we come to chapter 10 where the writer is going to call on his readers and us by extension to show boldness. They needed courage. And though the writer often comes on strong in his arguments and issues some serious warnings, as we're going to see later on in chapter 10, we're going to look at the fourth of five pretty stern warning passages in Hebrews here in a couple of weeks, he he nevertheless understood that what he was asking them to do, that first century Jewish Christian community, called for a show of courage. And that's not something... That comes easily to most people, then or now. I think the key verse in chapter 10, which again we'll get to this verse next week, but it's verse 19, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. Now we've been singing about the blood uh, this morning, and last week in chapter 9, the writer, as you may recall, appealed to the shed blood of Christ. But all that it accomplished, or last time, in the last session anyway. But here in chapter 10, he's going to point out that Christ's sacrifice should impact us in a particular way. And that is, it should engender boldness on our part. And this theme of boldness is not entirely new in the writer's uh, letter here. He introduced it way back in chapter 4, when he said, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we might obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That word boldness is the Greek word paresia. Paresia. Notice what it means. These are lexical definitions, the t- t- nuances or senses of this word. Obviously boldness and courage, but frankness, outspokenness, paresia. It's used 30 times in the New Testament, four of which are in Hebrews and two of those are right here in chapter 10. Boldness. You know, I find it interesting that the book of Acts, which gives us essentially a a historical overview of the beginnings, the birth of the church. Remember, the book of Acts begins with Christ's ascension, moves right into the day of Pentecost, uh, 10 days later, uh, on the day of which the, the church was born in Acts 2, and then it traces the next almost 30 years, 29 years, of church history and i was thinking about it if you go to the last two verses in the book of acts it ends with a call for boldness on the part of the church as exemplified by the apostle paul so the year is 62 a.d when acts ends paul is under house arrest and it says paul dwelt two whole years in his own rented house and received all who came to him preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence. That's that same word in Greek, paresia, boldness, confidence, courage, outspokenness. And it just seems to me that the church has come a long way since the spring of 62 AD when the book of Acts ends. We've seemed to have lost our sense of boldness. Now, there are pockets of it all over the place. If you think about 2,000 years of church history, there have been many men and women of faith who have stood courageously and faced being burned at the stake or beheaded or persecuted in so many other ways. So it's not absent, certainly. And there's always a remnant. But as I think about the Christian church in America, in particular, it just seems like we lack courage. And it concerns me because... Uh, as Alexander Solzhenitsyn put it, he he spoke at the Harvard commencement on June 8, 1978, and he made this comment. One must point out that from ancient times, a decline in courage has been considered the beginning of the end. And I just wonder, as a country, if this decline in courage might be a harbinger of tough times ahead. So turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. I want to just look at the first uh, 10 verses. I want to point out three indications of fear. Three indications of fear. Then next week, I'm going to come back, and I haven't filled it all in yet, but it's going to be something like five reasons for boldness, kind of the solution, if you will. Uh, But as he's done throughout his letter, the writer begins this section, which we call chapter 10. We divided it into chapters many centuries after it was written. But he begins this section by pointing out the weakness and limitation of the old Jewish system. And I'm going to describe this as an indication of fear. And that is this idea of fleeing to our comfort zone. Fleeing to our comfort zone is an indication of fear. It's a a natural knee-jerk reaction. Uh, that we have when we're facing difficult times look at verse one for the law having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things can never with these same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make those who approach perfect these jewish christians and again it seems like the author's beating a, a drum here but remember the audience it, the, these were jews many of whom probably got saved on the day of Pentecost 30 years earlier, and some of them had gotten saved in the intervening years since. But nevertheless, they were believers that had come out of Judaism. And they were very, very comfortable with the law. Uh, it had a certain attraction to it. But the writer reminded them, as we've talked about before, that the law was just a shadow. And, and, and they needed to come out of those shadows, like the residents of Plato's cave. Remember that we talked about several weeks ago? Uh, These believers had forgotten that the law was not the substance, it was the shadow. It was not the reality. And it really couldn't provide the true peace and security that they needed in the difficult times they were facing under Nero's persecution. You know, fear often discourages us from venturing too far from our comfort zones, doesn't it? And in the case of these Jewish Christians, it can also sometimes drive us back uh, to our comfort zone, just the way that it it drove Elijah to that cave. I mentioned Elijah just a moment ago. Do you remember that story, the story of Elijah? Really fascinating Old Testament historical account. Uh, It's a story that includes one of the mightiest moves of God, supernatural moves of God. I mean, right up there with the resurrection and the parting of the Red Sea and other things when, when there's this, this battle between God and the prophets of Baal, these, these pagan gods on Mount Carmel. And uh, in, in, it, it's recorded in 1 Kings chapter 19. And right after God supernaturally destroys the, the prophets of Baal in this battle, you know, Elijah you'd think would be on a high and would be ready to just conquer anything. And yet, wicked queen Jezebel sends a messenger to Elijah saying, in response to this, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them. In other words, you kill these prophets that served me, you're in for it too. And Elijah was overcome with fear. Total fear. And so, the text tells us, when he saw that, he arose and ran for his life. You know. I and mean, it's just amazing the juxtaposition there. One minute, he's just raining down fire from heaven or calling on God Yahweh to do that, confidently standing up to these pagan prophets, and the next minute he's running for his life. And eventually he gets to a cave, and he the Bible tells us he spent the night in that cave. And this is where he has that encounter with the wind and the earthquake and then the fire and then eventually God speaks to him in that still small voice, right? And in this little encounter while uh, you know Elijah is hiding out in this cave, God asks Elijah a question, the same question twice. He asks it when he first gets there when he says, "What are you doing here, Elijah?" And I think this first question the emphasis was on here. What are you doing here? What are you doing in this cave? I mean, I realize it's away from the crowds. I realize you are away from the front lines of the battle. I realize you might feel more comfortable and safe here. But is this really where I want you? Don't you see how I used you out in public, out on the mountain where everybody could see? And and, and you're really here? And then He asks the same question a little bit later after, you know, the wind and the earthquake and the fire and the Lord was not in those things. The Lord's just trying to get Elijah's attention. And then we read down in verse 13 that he hears a still small voice that God is speaking to him and he asks that same question. But I think this time the emphasis is on doing. Okay, what are you doing, Elijah? What is this all about? And then, I don't have it on the screen, but you remember the, the the little dialogue there. Elijah has one of those, woe is me, poor pitiful me moments. Uh, we see those from time to time from God's people, which gives me comfort. If these heroes of the faith can do that, like David and Elijah, Jonah. Remember Jonah? That's a funny story under the, was it the gourd, I think? Something like that. And he's But anyway, here's Elijah's poor pitiful me moment. He says in response directly to this second time the question is asked, he says, Lord, I've been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts because the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant and torn down your altars and killed your prophets by the sword. And I alone am left. And now they seek to take my life too. You know, I'm the only one. You ever feel like you're the only one standing firm in a time when there's so much compromise? And of course, you remember God's response. Uh, He says, No, no, I've reserved 7,000 people in Israel who've not bowed the knee to Baal. And uh, every mouth that has not kissed him. In other words, you're not alone. You're not alone. But back to the text, in in, in verse 4, the writer repeats this refrain from last week and from several other passages within this letter when he basically says the law won't cut it, it's not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. So your comfort zone is not enough. Why do you want to retreat back there to this cave of comfort when I've already proven unequivocally by this point in his sermon, the letter was really a sermon, that it's not going to cut it. This situation calls for boldness. For boldness. So what are your comfort zones? Where do you tend to to flee emotionally and spiritually when trouble arises what is your knee-jerk reaction we need to identify those places and tear them down as shadows really of the reality and then put in their place a steadfast focus on Christ we're leading up to kind of the pivotal key passage in Hebrews which we've looked at a lot in passing but we'll get to it in chapter 12 when He says basically, you know, he cuts to the chase and says, keep your eyes fixed on Christ. Look to him. He's the one that can be your real source of protection and peace and comfort. So one indication of fear is this tendency to flee to our comfort zone. But a second one is consensus. It seems like today people are more prone to sort of take a vote and go with the majority than they are to really ask the hard question of what's the right thing to do. Uh, There was a a test conducted by a university uh, where ten students would be placed in a room and they would have in front of them three lines of varying lengths just right next to each other. And then the students were told to raise their hand when the instructor pointed to the longest line. And they did this over and over again with different subjects, but in each case, nine of the students have been instructed beforehand to raise their hand when the instructor pointed to the second longest line. And one student was not in on it. He was the stooge. Well, the usual reaction of that stooge was when the, when the instructor pointed to the longest line was to To put their hand up, I mean it's obvious, right? But then look around, no one else is putting their hand up And it would immediately go back down Hesitatingly And this happens 75% Of the time In students from grade school Up through high school See, doing the right thing Often means being willing to stand alone For many uh, Of the first century Jewish Christians, they were just going along To get along They had not thought through the issues very deeply. Many Christians were abandoning, forsaking themselves together, abandoning the regular weekly assembly of the believers in Christ, and instead associating once again with the Judaistic system. Because in that culture, the Judaistic system was still in cahoots with Rome and was still under governmental protection. So rather than stand alone and do the right thing, they were kind of seeking consensus. And if you go to the text here in verse 5, uh, Dave, uh, the writer is quoting King David from Psalm 40. In fact, the next three verses are just a quote from Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8. And it's messianic, Referring, David is referring to Christ, and he says, when he, that's Christ, came into the world, he said, sacrifice an offering you do not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. That's an interesting uh, translation of the Hebrew idiom. The Hebrew idiom, if you were to translate it word for word, is uh, instead of a body you prepare for me, it is you have dug ears for me. And it's just a figure of speech. It's uh, technically a synecdoche, part for the whole, is when you take some part of something and apply it to the whole. Ears here being a part for the whole body. And it just basically means that when Jesus came in the Incarnation, He took on a body that would ultimately accomplish God's will of Him being the once-for-all sacrifices. Christ came into the world, David tells us in Psalm 40, to accomplish what the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, sacrifices couldn't accomplish and never could. And he goes on, again, still quoting from Psalm 40, In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. See, Jesus was not some dumb animal that offered his life or its life unthinkingly. He consciously, deliberately, willingly offered his life in obedience to God. Well, he tells us that in John 10. No one takes my life from me. I give it willingly. And David's words here, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, essentially sum up the whole tenor of our Lord Jesus Christ's life and ministry. And what the writer of Hebrews is saying here, again, going back to that shadow reality uh, dichotomy, is that, notice he says, in the volume of the book, he's talking there about the Torah, the law, the Old Testament, And essentially, he's saying that all of that pointed to Christ. This was all God's plan. It was Christ, the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, by the way, is going to come, do God's will, and accomplish what your Judaistic system couldn't. In in verses 8 and 9, the writer essentially elaborates on what he's just quoted. So he's quoted from Psalm 40. Now he's going to kind of give some commentary about it. And he says, God took no delight in sacrifices that don't reflect a heart of change. And that's what the law was. It was just rote ritual. He says, God's plan all along was to take away the first Mosaic covenant and its sacrifices and then establish a second covenant through the shed blood christ that's the reason that christ when he instituted the lord's supper in the upper room on that thursday night the night he was betrayed he said this cup is the new covenant in my blood which he would then shed within 24 hours on the cross this was god's will it satisfied him and the writer is showing here that jesus didn't come to offer sacrifices and join the crowd and join the consensus he didn't come to be part of an existing system he tells us Himself He came to fulfill that system. you remember what He said in uh, the Sermon on the Mount? Don't think that I came to destroy the law, the prophets. I didn't come to destroy, but to fulfill. But to fulfill. So a second indication of fear is this idea of seeking consensus. And if you find yourself seeking consensus rather than following your convictions or doing God's will well, there's a good chance you're a victim of fear. You're operating out of fear. I came across this great a quote by Vance Havner, which a lot of people have called the most quoted preacher of the 20th century. And he said this, I love this. When you're accustomed to standing before God, kings don't matter much. Big potentates are just small potatoes when you've been standing in the presence of God of the Most High. When facing trying times, we need to remember who we serve. We need to remember that there are a lot of small potatoes today acting like big potentates. And we don't serve them. We serve the Lord and His Son and our Savior Jesus Christ. We need to be bold. But then there's a third Indication of fear that I I think we can draw from these first 10 verses, and that is conformity. Conformity. Now, conformity is similar to consensus, but the two ideas are not identical. So, consensus that we just talked about is more group minded. Those seeking consensus are often honestly, you know, feeling like the majority rules, they're just kind of going along. But, conformity, on the other hand, is more self focused conformity looks out for oneself and as we said jesus didn't come to take a vote and then align himself with the established jewish sacrificial system that would be consensus he came to do his father's will no matter the cost but neither did jesus come to blend in and avoid making waves his mission was unique he was holy as the father is holy by the way our mission is unique too that's why we're called as believers to be holy, as God is holy. What does holy mean? Well, if we look at the last verse here in this first section, it says, By that will we have been sanctified. Sanctified is the, is the Greek word hagiatso. It means to make holy. What does holy mean? Separate, unique, one of a kind. So the same will that called for Christ to come and be our sacrifice for sins also calls for those of us who've been born again by believing in that one who died and rose again for our sins to likewise be one of a kind to be set apart to be unique those who are part of the community of faith that have been born again into the family of God have been set apart we're not supposed to be like the world we're not supposed to conform Paul said it bluntly in Romans 12 be not conformed to this world but be transformed in the book of Hebrews, whenever we see the word sanctification, the writer is typically talking about our positional sanctification, and he's using it in the synonym as a synonym for justification. So the Bible uses sanctification in three different senses. Most commonly, it's referred to in the sense of our progressive sanctification of walking with Christ, growing in the faith, not yielding to the flesh, but yielding to the Holy Spirit. And as we grow over a in our Christian life, we become more Christ-like, and that's progressively being set apart. But there are two other ways the Bible uses the word sanctification. One of them is the way it's used here, speaking of our one-time moment in time when faith meets the gospel and we are positionally set apart not practically because we still have that sin nature but positionally we're adopted into the family of god and then there are a few places where sometimes this word Hagiazo, is referred to in the sense of glorification where one day once and for all when this mortal puts on immortality and this in this corruption puts on incorruptibleness we will be glorified and be saved from the presence of sin forever set apart holy set apart permanently positionally and uh, in terms of our very presence from sin, but the idea here is either way, we're not to conform. We're different. We shouldn't be looking to see how we can blend in. We should want to stand alone and be unique and firm. Uh, we even in the midst of strife, and that's what these original readers were facing: is their comfort zone, their knee-jerk reaction, was to do what everybody else was doing, what the majority was doing, and to blend in with the Judaistic system. And in that way, they thought they could somehow avoid fear. But to do so was an affront to the very God who saved them. And we, too, are supposed to be looking to obey God and honor Him first and foremost and let the chips fall where they may. And in the second part of this message next week, I'm going to get into some of the ways in which we can uh, realize boldness and exemplify boldness. But the writer is going to talk about that in verse 23 when he says, let us hold fast our confession. This concept of holding fast, standing firm is not new uh, in his letter. He's been talking about it since uh, chapter 4 when he said, seeing then that we have such a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Now more than ever, believers need to hear the message of this passage. Conformity is not the way God operates. God operates according to truth. He wants us to conform to the image of His Son who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And sometimes standing in truth means not conforming to the ways of the world. And that can be a pretty lonely place. And yet that's the world we've become. People follow the crowd. They blend in out of fear. There is a fascinating study that was conducted by the university of pennsylvania that illustrates the power and dangers of consensus and i want to show a short clip of of a broader video explanation of of this study it's about three and a half minutes Uh, but it's a social experiment coming out of this study and it's really quite humorous and yet sad at the same time especially Uh, with what we see all around us these days in this this great last days of deception. And so let me just mention, because I know many, many people watch this on video later and many more listen to the podcast. If you're listening to this on the podcast, uh, I think you'll be able to understand because the narrator kind of voices over and kind of explains a little bit about what's going on. But I really encourage you, if you're watching this later or listening to this later, uh, to go to notbyworks.org and watch the video portion of the sermon that covers this illustration because it's definitely uh, worth uh, seeing. So here's the clip and then I'll come back in just a moment.
1: To answer that question, we set up a hidden camera experiment to see if this woman would stand up at the sound of this tone simply because everyone else is. You might be thinking you'd never go along with this, or would you? After just three beeps, and without knowing why she's doing it, this woman is now conforming perfectly to the group, but what happens if we take the group away? Now she's alone, the crowd is gone, and nobody is watching her except our hidden cameras. What do you think she'll do? She's now conforming to the rules of the group without them even being there. Now, watch what happens when we introduce another outsider who doesn't know the rules. Have a seat, and they'll be out in just a couple minutes. Thanks so much. Think she'll teach the new guy what to do? We kept the cameras rolling as more unsuspecting patients arrived. Slowly but surely, what began as a random rule for this woman has now become the social norm for everyone in this waiting room. Here to explain what's going on in their brains is Jonah Berger of the University of Pennsylvania. This sort of internalized form of her behavior is part of what we call social learning. Starting at a very early age, when we see members of our group perform a task, our brains literally reward us for following in their footsteps.
0: When I saw everybody stand up, I felt like I needed to join them. Otherwise, I'm like excluded. Once I decided to go with it, then I felt much more comfortable.
1: Conformity is how we become socialized, but it can also cause us to develop bad habits or repeat past wrongs. And it's why even this rebel, wasn't standing for any of this nonsense, eventually joined the ranks. And the only thing more shocking than seeing how easily conformity affects the way you act is that similar forces are subconsciously shaping the way you think.
0: So I can't help but draw some connections to our culture today when I see people driving alone in a car and Conforming to a social norm that has no medical or scientific basis for it whatsoever And in fact can actually be harmful and I'll just leave it at that But the writer of Hebrews wants us to know that going with the flow going along with the crowd conforming That's not what Jesus did And it's not what we should do either The Jesus who saved us came and rocked the world. He changed the world. And He stood alone. In fact, He died alone on the cross. All of His friends even abandoning Him. And that's what true leaders do. They're willing to stand alone. Anybody can get a bunch of followers, but it's those who are willing to stand on conviction uh, that I think are doing the right thing. So the situation that these first century Jewish believers found themselves in called for boldness and boldness requires firmness one more quote for you before we close this is from oswald chambers famous book spiritual leadership and listen to what he says courage is that quality of mind which enables men to encounter danger or difficulty with firmness or without fear He goes on to say, the highest degree of courage is seen in the person who is most fearful, but refuses to capitulate to it. Fear. So there are three indications of fear. First of all, if you're kind of going back to your comfort zone, uh, fleeing from dealing with the reality around you, no matter how uncomfortable it is, that's An indication you're operating out of fear. Or if you're seeking consensus. You know, that's a kind of a fashionable thing to do now, right? Leadership by consensus. Let's take a vote. Let's see which way the wind is blowing. You know, politicians are great at that. It's the reason nothing ever gets done, right? Or conformity. When out of fear, we just simply follow the crowd. So what's the takeaway? Well, here's the takeaway from these first ten verses. I would say this boldness is being the only one who knows you're afraid and yet standing firm anyway and that that is really convicting to me as i kind of put it in those words because i'm not good at you know not showing my fear you know i get defensive i get upset i get angry but we need to stand firm in such a way that yeah we may have fear But it's not driving the way we behave. It's not driving what we say. It's not driving how we react. We are confident because we know that Jesus Christ is the beginning and the end. He's eternal and He's got this. The same Jesus that died and rose again for our sins. The same Jesus who gives us the free gift of eternal life when we place our faith in Him. Is the same Jesus who's right there walking with us through even difficult times. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for just these reminders of some of the fleshly, natural ways that we deal with a crisis. And Lord, I pray that as we continue through this study, You would embolden us and encourage us uh, to have the strength to stand firm, even when it's difficult. And Lord, we pray that uh, as we have opportunity, we would be able to apply and implement uh, just the teachings of this passage. Convict us through Your Spirit of the times in which we tend to flee for those comfort zones and, and raise up men and women and young people who can stand boldly for the cause of Christ. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.